I have a question this morning. By raise of hands, how many of you decorate for Christmas? Okay, many of you do. So here's another question. If you want to raise your hand, you can. Do you go crazy or do you keep it light? How many of you go crazy? Like you go all out. You decorate the whole house. You decorate the outside, all that good stuff. Anybody? And so I'm going to guess, okay, so that leads me to conclude the rest of you are kind of moderate in your display of Christmas expressions. Okay. Which is fine. There's no right or wrong answer here. I think those who go crazy get a little bit overboard. But that's okay. That's, that's the way they do it. Um, and that's fine. Uh, I grew up in a household in southwest Minnesota where we did decorate a little bit. Um, but more and more as my, my dad has now two grandsons, is so excited that he gets to decorate for them that he goes a little bit crazy uh, in his decorating. But that's fine. Um, there are... I am not a Grinch. My wife just texted me and said, I'm a Grinch. I'm not a Grinch. I'm not a Grinch. I, I enjoy all things in moderation. Uh, um, there are homes and businesses, if you go around town, it's already happened, uh, that do decorate, and they go all out for the holidays. Uh, inside and outside, you see the displays, you see the lights. Um, I remember one time back when I was working in Pennsylvania, going to seminary, finishing up the last year, I remember having a conversation with a, a customer that I was driving back to the dealership, and he made mention of the fact that he had read an article or, or something that one couple in that area had their electric bill after one month of Christmas lights was somewhere in the north of twenty dollars to $30,000 because of all the Christmas lights they had up. So, so some, some people and businesses do go all out, and, and you cannot help, right, but stop and look and admire all the decorations that are out there, and, and you look at all the intricate designs and see what's been set up, whether it be snowmen or different cartoon characters. Um, if I had to pick my preference of a character to put out, it would probably be Snoopy and Charlie Brown. I love Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, and so we get to admire those, don't we, for the next month or so. And, and some people are a little weird and keep them up longer than that. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that's none of you. I'm not saying it's none of you. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it is fun to look at all those intricate designs and just marvel at the Christmas season through those displays. Well, the, the passage this morning, and we're going to look at three different texts, is going to challenge us, I hope, in, in this way, that I would put it to you this way, marvel at God's design for Christmas. Marvel at God's design for Christmas. Just like you stop uh, and get, stare at the Christmas lights, which my family does every year. We're going to, here in a few weeks, maybe a week or two, we'll, we'll take the boys out and We'll look at all the Christmas lights. Just like you stop and admire Christmas decorations and lights outside a home or a business, even more so I would challenge you to marvel at God's design for the Christmas that he gave us. And I'll give you three facts about God's design for Christmas that we can see that would cause us to marvel. First one comes from here in Genesis 3.15. and is that this, that God's design was intentional. God's design for Christmas was intentional. It wasn't random. It wasn't off the cuff. It was intentional. 
Notice as we look at Genesis 3.15 here, all the way back at the beginning, the announcement of Christ came in a pivotal time. We all know that Genesis 3 talks about the fall of man into sin, right? Adam had sinned, Eve had sinned. And now they're, they're experiencing the guilt from that, the shame that comes from that. And God pulls it out of them, right? What have you done? Why have you done this? And they confess and give their reasons. And, and starting in verse 14, God pronounces judgment. And God had to because God is a holy God. And though he had created a sinless paradise for his creation to enjoy, because of one man's sin, it's now desolate and corrupt. Think about that for a second. Adam's sin corrupted, desecrated God's perfect paradise. If you think that sin has no consequences, you're wrong. Because the one sin that started it all had devastating consequences. And so something has to be done. God has to judge sin. Right? So first off, with the announcement of Christ, is the judgment of Satan. That's where it comes in. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. There's, there's physical judgment here in verse 14. And there's spiritual judgment in verse 15, which we'll get here to in a minute. So, so Satan inhabited a physical serpent, used that creature to get, tempt Eve and Adam to sin. And that is an accurate description of his character, isn't it? If you jump ahead all the way to the end of the story, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, it says this, the angel talking about the, the angel uh, of the Lord taking Satan, binding him, says he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Quite apropos that he inhabited a serpent because he is a liar. He is he is a deceiver. And what did he do? He pronounced physical judgment, but also spiritual judgment. Verse 15. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman. What does the word enmity mean? It means a hostile disposition. It means constant friction, constant battle. Because of the fall of man into sin, now there will be struggle between the offspring of Eve, humanity, and the offspring of Satan, spiritual forces. So there's this continual war that's going between humanity and the, in the, in the spiritual realm. There's hostility. There's, there's no friendly fire between Satan and humanity. Satan is never your friend, just so you know. He's always against you. So in leading in man into sin, God uses this announcement of a Redeemer to pronounce eternal judgment on Satan. God does not leave Satan guiltless. 
in this story. Don't, don't look at, at the, the, the very beginning of the fall of man and say Satan gets off. He doesn't get off. He is judged. And so with the announcement of the judgment of Christ, the announcement of Christ comes with a cost. Satan will have temporary victory. If you continue on between her seed and your seed, so the, the combativeness there. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What does the word bruise mean at the end of the verse 15? It means to snatch one's heel with the implication of biting it. An illustration of that, if you, anybody ever been bit by a snake? No? Okay. I've never been bitten by a snake. But maybe to illustrate this from my personal vantage point, I grew up with uh, pet birds. If you know, like cockatiels and, um, what was the other one? Parakeets. And, and what they're famous for is biting, unless you, unless you treat them right. Um, they'll be fine. But one of them, his, his name was Reggie. Reggie had a really sharp beak. And if you weren't careful enough, if you stepped, you put your hand too close to his beak, he would reach out and grab it. And that beak was sharp enough that it could draw blood. And it was really sharp. And so he would snatch your finger and, and then you would pull away, ow, ow, ow. Um, because either he was, in a, he was grumpy or he didn't, want, he didn't want to be touched, so he bit you. But that's the idea of a bruise, of, of snatching and biting. Okay? And the heel points to a significant event that would happen that would cause temporary pain. When you would get something in your heel, whether you step on a stone or a stick and you got some sharp pain down there, it lasts for a little bit, right? But it's only temporary. And we know looking so many thousands of years later that Satan, through the cross, would have temporary victory over Christ. But yet that victory would be so insignificant in light of who Christ is and what his death would accomplish. The, the, the victory of Satan on the cross was only temporary. It was only minor. Right? It wasn't anything of any significance it had temporary impact. And so what God does in pronouncing judgment on Satan is pointing that he has only temporary victory. And that leads me to ask this morning, are you allowing Satan to have victory over your life? Because in our struggle in the Christian life, there is times where we fall in temptation and sin and we let Satan have victory. We let him have the dominance that he does not deserve. So in light of the temporary victory of Satan over Christ, are you letting, have, letting Satan have victory in your life? Are you giving him the preeminence that he does not deserve? Because in light of this, the temporary victory of Satan would be quickly destroyed. Look with me at the end of verse 15, in the middle of verse 15. He shall bruise your, your head. The announcement of Christ comes with a promise. Yes, Satan's going to have temporary victory, but Christ will have total victory. The word bruise is the same word, okay? It's used to talk about you shall bruise his heel. But the emphasis is different. The emphasis here is 
the idea of crushing by stepping down. You remember when you were a kid? Maybe this was just me uh, and being a boy. Uh, crushing bugs was a really fun activity. Michaela's going back. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Michaela's saying no. What did you do? You, you, you stepped on them, right? You crushed them. To, and if you were fascinated by the guts and everything that came out, that's what, you know, what's what happened. I remember a story, uh, just a little boy in the church that I was a part of in New Jersey. He, Titus was only, maybe he wasn't even two yet. He was probably two. Uh, his, his dad, who was assistant pastor, kind of pointed out the ants to him. So he walked up to one ant and went, Bye, ant. <laughs> well, he wanted to see it crushed. Because that's what's fascinating to him. Well, the same idea is there, not a fascination, but of, of crushing. That Christ, through, his, through the cross, crushed Satan once and for all. He achieved total victory, and Satan is considered a defeated foe. That's the coming of Christ, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. That his promise coming would bring total victory over Satan. And that leads me to ask this question this morning. Are you praising God that Satan was defeated at the cross? That because of the cross of Christ, we have total victory over Satan. Satan is his defeated foe. He does not have total victory in hand. He is in defeat. So do you praise God for that? And that, that also leads me to ask, are we focusing on God for that victory over Satan? Because we still have times of temptation, don't we? We're still sinners, right? We still sin. Satan is still out there trying to deceive and to make us fall and be ineffective for Christ. So are you yielding to a defeated foe? Or are you trusting in the work of Christ and claiming that victory as your own and focusing on that, using that as motivation to not yield to temptation? Because he is defeated. Satan is biding for time. His end is near. He is a defeated foe, and that shows through the announcement all the way back in the beginning that's God's aim. His design for Christmas was intentional. Notice, secondly, that his design was strategically placed. Let's go to Micah, the book of Micah. The prophet Micah, Micah 5.2. We're going to hop all over the Old Testament this morning. Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah is a prophet he speaks God's truth to both Samaria and Jerusalem, to both Israel and Judah. So you can read that in Micah chapter 1, verse 1. Tells God what judgment is coming. But now in, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of the future promise in chapter 4 of, of Christ or God coming to reign, he gives, he gives hope. He gives some indication. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet one of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. 
God's design for Christmas was strategically placed. How is this? It's number one would occur in Bethlehem, an insignificant city. If you know anything about the the geography, for those of you who have been to Israel or you've looked at a map, Bethlehem is located five miles south of Jerusalem. And it did play a significant role in Jewish history, right? Who is is someone famous who came from Bethlehem? Go ahead, shout it out. David. David, greatest of Israel's kings, was born there. Ruth, the the Moabitess who came and integrated herself into Jewish culture and life made her home there with Boaz. So Bethlehem has a rich history, but yet it is not that significant, which is referenced by the word little. It refers to the, the, the idea of being smallest, trivial, not important. Bethlehem Ephrathah, the word Ephrathah means, could even, either mean the district where Bethlehem is located or it's another name for Bethlehem, Bethlehem itself. But yet, it was insignificant. It had, no, it had no value politically, militarily. But it is to be noted, yet from this tiny, insignificant Bethlehem would come God's chosen leader. That, that verb shall come forth in the middle of verse 2 shows origin. So it says it shall come forth. It's going to come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem will be the originator of the Messiah. And notice what it says. This is interesting. Yet out of you shall come forth to me. Not for you. You know, you would think in the midst of this prophecy about Christ or God coming to reign, you can go back to uh, chapter 4 and verse 6. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcasts among whose, whom I have afflicted. I'll make the lame a remnant, I'll the outcasts a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. You think that, okay, this is going to be for us. This, as if you're a Jew reading this, you're going to say, okay, this, this ruler is coming for us. But it says to me, to God. What does this mean? It, would, it, it, mean, it highlights the destination of the Messiah. He comes from Bethlehem to be a part of God's plan. This is not designed for human intentions, but God's sovereign will. This is what God wills. This is not what man has designed. God has gone through the whole process of bringing, prophesying the Messiah for his purposes, not man's. Now, does man benefit? Yes. But God's intended intention for this man would be to fulfill his designs for Israel. And that this man would come from a tiny city who would have no political or geographical impact. It was specific. It was intentional, strategically placed. Notice also that this leader is the promised Davidic king destined to rule over the nation. The one to be ruler in Israel. The word ruler comes from the family of words in the Hebrew meaning king. Emphasizes authority, emphasizes rulership. So God's chosen king comes from Bethlehem. Which is ironic. Because where would one seek to find God's chosen king? Not in Bethlehem. You go five miles north. Go to Jerusalem. The city of kings. The capital city. You'd, you'd expect to find the ruler there. 
Which is, which is natural, because if you look at the Christmas story, where do the wise men go first? They go to Jerusalem. Where is he born king of the Jews? We know he comes from Bethlehem, a small city, insignificant town. And the origin of this ruler comes from the promise of a future king through David's line. You can go jump to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where God promises to David a ruler. It says that in your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That was, that was, that was the promise that was given. Now, it would seem here in just in verse 2 of Micah 5 that whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Some commentators take that to talk about the eternality of the Messiah, meaning that he is God. I think rather it is to be seen that those two phrases refer to the promise of the Messiah, not the ruler himself. So the promise was from old. The promise was from everlasting. It is a fulfilled promise. That's it. That is the emphasis. Not on the eternality of the ruler, meaning that it is God, obviously, but on the promise itself, who, who's, who's coming, who's going forth, who's fulfilled uh, requirements are from of old, from everlasting. He was promised long before he came. So that leads me to ask you a question this morning as we think about marveling at God's design for Christmas and, and praising God. Are we praising God for his ways that are far above ours? Romans 11.33 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. You and I, if we're writing the story, most of us would go to Jerusalem, wouldn't we? We'd want the ruler to come from there, the king to come from a, a place of strength, a place of fortitude, a capital city. That just makes sense. But God doesn't work in ways that make sense to us, right? He works in ways that are far above ours. He uses a tiny, insignificant village to bring his ruler into the world. And aren't you thankful this morning that his ways are not our ways? That his ways are so far higher above our, ours, his intentions are so greater than ours, that it just staggers our wisdom to look at the wisdom of God. And so that also leads me to say, are we yielding to his ways that are far above ours? Again, we write the story differently. We would see the story differently. But acknowledging that God has done it so far above our understanding, can we not say that we need to submit to his ways rather than ours? That if God can plan the coming of the Messiah in such intricate detail through such little, small villages, cannot we trust him for things that are so much less? Cannot we submit to his ways that are so much greater than ours and give him the control? Third fact about this Christmas, God's design for Christmas, and that is that his design had a unique component. Let's jump to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Very famous text of Scripture. Part of Handel's Messiah, the Christmas story. 
Verse 14, now, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. How was God's design unique? God used a virgin to bring Christ into the world. Here in, in verse 14, and we need to talk about context very briefly. The prophecy occurs amidst God coming to King Haaz in Judah hearing about the distress that was going to come upon him from Syria and Samaria and and Israel. They're planning to make war. They're discouraged. You can jump back to verse 2. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods were moved with wind. They're, They're just so struggling with confidence. God sends Isaiah to meet Ahaz. says, don't worry. They're not going to come to anything. They're going to be destroyed. Verse 10 God says, okay, ask me a sign to confirm this. And Ahaz either doesn't want to trust God or is just not courageous enough to ask. But he says, I won't do it. I won't ask God. I won't tempt the Lord. Which some look at this and say, well, he's, he's right in doing that. He's right not to tempt God. And, and, but the emphasis here is not on tempting God. It's asking God for a sign to confirm his truth. And that's not wrong. And so what God does is he says, he gives hope, but he also pronounces judgment. Because then he says in verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you the king of Assyria and your people and your father's house. Judgment is pronounced because Ahaz did not choose to trust God. But in verse 14, behold the virgin, a young woman who is of marrying age but has not been intimate with a man. That's, that's the idea of the word virgin there. And this is unique, Right? How does God normally bring children into the world? How does that normally happen? Through marriage, right? This is, this is Genesis all over. Genesis 1, verses 28. Verse 28, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We're, we're, we're able to reproduce children through marriage. Many of you have children in this room this morning that you have, have birthed into this world and now they're all on their own starting their own families. That's how, that's how it works. That's how God uses marriage to make sure children come into the world. He doesn't use virgins. He uses married people. That's unique. Notice also, secondly, that this virgin would be supernaturally empowered to give birth to Christ. A virgin shall conceive. Word shall conceive describes the process of pregnancy. And coupled with the word virgin, the pregnancy will be supernatural and is conceived outside of normal human involvement. We can jump forward to Luke chapter 1 and look at the angel's prophecy to Mary, verses 31 to 35a. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And we call great, and we call the Son of the Most High. And Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll be, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? There's the virgin aspect. And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It will be a supernatural event. Shall conceive and bear... Bear means to, to talk about the process of giving birth. 
She'll bear what? A son. Again, fulfilled in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Supernatural, empowered pregnancy and birth. Notice also that the virgin son, the virgin's son's name would carry great significance. God with us. That's the, that's the word Emmanuel. Now, let me break it down. Let me give you a little Hebrew here just briefly this morning. Let me break it down for you. If you're looking at your Bible there, break down the word a little bit. That, those first four letters, ima, means with. Okay, that's the, the, the preposition with. New, the N and the U there, means us. And E-L-L means God. So if you translate it literally, it's with us, God. So when you say the word Emmanuel, you're speaking Hebrew. Okay, That's the term. God with us. And this was significant because the nation needed to know that God was with them even though judgment was coming. Jump, jump forward just, just for a minute to chapter 8 and verses 8 through 10 of Isaiah. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck with a stretching of his wings. will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you far countries. Give yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Emmanuel. Now, the greater impact, obviously, is the birth of Christ. The, the temporary impact, I think, this is, this is one of those situations here in Isaiah 7.14 where you will hear me from time to, say, time to time say, this is double fulfillment. I think what Isaiah is doing here and God is doing here by this prophecy is he's all saying this is going to happen now, but this will happen in the future. Okay, And, and I will, we, can, we can talk about that later in the afternoon service, but... The greater impact here, obviously, is the prophecy concerning the birth of Christ is that literally God is with his people. It's not about using miracles or deliverance to show that God is with them, but through physical existence would be the standard by which God would make his presence known. So God's not about, no longer about just doing miracles and showing up from time to time. No, he's about being with his people. Let me point your attention to Revelation 21.3, the end of the story. What's going to be the defining mark of the eternal state? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The literal term of the... Uh, the real meaning of the term will dwell is to mean to pinch your tent. God literally will make his home eternally with us one day. You looking forward to that? When God will be with us forever? No longer in this, this, um, this distance realm, if you will, but God's literal name, Christ's literal name, Emmanuel, not only means 
meant for that time a, a physical reality that he walked the earth for that period of 30 plus years, but it also points to the greater reality in the future where he will walk with us forever. He will dwell with us and we will be with him. So it leads me to ask you this morning, are you praising God? Are we praising God for his fulfilled promises? All that we've talked about has come true. Micah 5.2, it's where Christ was born. Isaiah 7.14, Mary gave birth. That was fulfilled promise. Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled promise. He had temporary victory, but Christ achieved total victory. And as we look at the promises of the coming of the Messiah, they are, they are fulfilled. They have been fulfilled by his coming. So do we praise God for his fulfilled promises? And maybe, like, like, like I mentioned this morning in Sunday school as we were talking about a promise in the story of the life of Solomon that we saw. Do we believe God when he makes a promise? God has said many things in his word, and yet sometimes we struggle to believe them. We struggle to, to look at the situation and see and remember God's promises. But can we not remember his fulfilled promises and know that God keeps his promises? That God fulfills what he has promised. And so we need to remember that in light of our struggle, in light of our circumstances, in light of our difficulty, in light of the, the impasse that we seem to be at at times. God still fulfills his promises. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's God's promise to you. That he will never leave you or abandon you. And even though you may seem or feel like that, he will always fulfill that promise. He did it at the coming of Christ. And he will always do it. He will always fulfill what he has promised. So I would urge you, encourage you, whatever, whatever situation you're going through, remember the promises of Scripture and remember that God always keeps his promises. Amen? He always keeps his promises. The intricacies of Christmas are now upon us. As your family, my family, businesses, individuals fully invest themselves into designing the ultimate Christmas experience. And as tempting as those displays are, as, as thrilling as those displays are to look at and to experience, let us not forget that the real design of Christmas deserves our complete attention. It was intentional. God intentionally brought Christmas about, Christmas about for the purpose of judging Satan, pronouncing total victory over him through Christ. God's design was strategically placed. He picked a little insignificant city. Small dot on the map to bring the Messiah into the world. And his design had a unique component. He used a little insignificant virgin named Mary bring his son into the world so this week let's remember what God did at Christmas and praise him for that event because that is the real meaning of Christmas not the decorations we put up